What needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones? Today I'm going to do a reading and discussion of On Shakespeare by John Milton, written in 1630. John Milton, who was from uh, 1608 to 1674, had his first published poem in Shakespeare's Second Folio. This is a production of Shakespeare's collected works, primarily his plays, put together after his death. And John Milton had this po- wrote this poem for that folio. Now, John Milton, of course, is one of the mo- most influential writers and thinkers of all time. He had an impact on the founding of America and the burgeoning liberty movement that occurred in the 1700s. Of course, most importantly and most pronouncedly, he was the author of Paradise Lost. But that would come later. In 1630, he was a young writer trying to think about how he was going to craft his career. And so he went back to Shakespeare. And he paid homage to Shakespeare. Not because that's what you're supposed to do, but because Shakespeare is, in fact, the greatest of all poets. And he knew that. More importantly, he's the greatest of all poetic dramatists. I find it incredibly romantic that John Milton, England's and perhaps the world's greatest non-dramatic poet, pays homage in his first poem ever to England's, perhaps the world's, greatest poetic dramatist. And that's what we have with On Shakespeare. So I'm going to read the poem On Shakespeare. And if you've watched my show before, you know that you probably won't know or understand everything. It won't make a lot of sense. And that's okay. Just kind of shut your mind off for a second. Just a second. And just listen to the words, Listen, just hear the sounds of the words, and then we'll go through it later afterwards, and I will go line by line to get a better grasp of this, to get a, a better understanding of it. So I'm just going to hop right into a reading of this on Shakespeare by John Milton, and then we will discuss And we'll talk a little bit more about the influence of Shakespeare on Milton and Milton on the world. On Shakespeare by John Milton What needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones, the labor of an age in piled stones, or that his hallowed relics should be hid under a star-e-pointing pyramid? Dear son of memory, great heir of fame, what needs thou such weak witness of thy name? Thou, in our wonder and astonishment, has built thyself a live-long monument. For whilst to the shame of slow-endeavoring art thy easy numbers flow, and that each heart hath from the leaves of thy unvalued book those Delphic lines with deep impression took, then thou— our fancy of itself bereaving, dost make us marble with too much conceiving. And so sepulchred in such pomp 
dost lie, that kings for such a tomb would wish to die. By the way, I forgot to mention I have my uh, Austin, Austin Shakespeare. The bard is only the beginning. Uh, so if you're in Austin, make sure you come to the Austin Shakespeare shows that happen all year round. So make sure you check those out. Okay, let's go through this kind of section by section and see what we can come up with. Now, the first thing I always recommend after you do one reading out loud, at least one reading, sometimes you could do or should do multiple, but for our purposes, I'm just going to do one. You can always go back and listen to it or read it out loud yourself. The first thing I do is I recommend underlining, you know, get a piece of paper or just selecting a few words that you're somewhat unfamiliar with. Even if you kind of know the word, don't, you know, uh, have a complex where you think you need to know every single word. Part of the joy and the enlightenment that comes from poetry is exploring the various meanings, the denotation and connotation of variety of words. Poets are wordsmiths above all other wordsmiths. So there's prose wordsmiths, which are okay. And then there's poets, which are especially great poets, which are grander than the grandest of all time. And Milton was certainly that. So what needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones, the labor of an age in piled stones, or that his hallowed relics should be hid under a star, star repointing pyramid? Now, ignoring the weird little star repointing, which is reference to some literary trend of the time, but one thing that you do kind of need, or it helps a lot to understand here, is the context. So that does help sometimes with literature. So in this case, remember I told you this is in the kind of preface for the second folio of Shakespeare's complete work after he's dead. So what is the point of the folio? The folio is to maintain and to hold all these dramatic works that Shakespeare did. Remember, Shakespeare was a producer and a writer and a director, and as you know, he put this whole thing together. And my understanding of Shakespeare was he never really thought or cared that much about the preservation of the actual text afterwards. He was really trying to just put on productions and he was just excited about that. And so it was people after he died who maintained because they re recognized the greatness of this Shakespeare person. And so Milton is writing this poem for that purpose in the kind of preservation of Shakespeare's work and all the great drama that he created. Milton here starts with a question. What needs my Shakespeare? So he's talking about his own thought about Shakespeare, right? What needs my Shakespeare for his honored bones? The, the labor of an age in pilot stones. So, you know, or that his hallowed relic should be hid under a starry pointing pyramid. He's asking like, what kind of monument is needed for this Shakespeare? Does Shakespeare need a monument of any kind? You know, the lab labor of an age in piled stones. So like, a statue or a building to his name? Is that what we want? Or, or hallowed? Here's one word that I looked up, right? Uh, honor as holy and, and a saint or a holy person. So should we get give Shakespeare holy relics and create a holy relic for him, like a beautiful gravestone with his name on it and a big old statue with him with a book or something like that? Is that is that what he needs under a starry pointing pyramid? I mean, reference to 
um, the the Egyptians and pyramids and their their monuments that they would have for their their pharaohs. And do we need that for Shakespeare? So he goes on. Milton goes on. Dear son of memory. Now this is a complicated one, actually. So memory, in this sense, is something that I don't think you would know unless you kind of had a bit of training in Greek mythology. But the capital M might, tri- you know, uh, might flick your mind to think about this. But in this case, he's talking about uh, a particular uh, Greek god, which is Nemozine, or the mother of the muses. And essentially, the muses are those who sing to me, you know, muse of the song of, or, you know, wrath of Achilles. And this is a, a reference to po- what poets will often refer to as the muse, the thing that gives me my ability to create this work that I'm going to share with the world. And so by calling him dear son of memory, he is doing something, Milton is doing something special here with regarding him essentially as a muse himself, as a son of, um, the son of Nemozine, the the mother of the muses. So in a sense, Shakespeare is the brother of a muse. So this is kind of a an important part of the poem, which is not obvious to us today because we're not classically trained anymore. Okay, so let's continue though. So I gave you the information there. So dear son of memory, so you know, you're a muse. Dear muse, he says, great heir of fame. So the, he's talking about the the fame of this person. We'll, go, we'll we'll try to come back to that if we have time. That, think about that, great heir of fame. What needs thou? What do you need such witness of thy name? What is he referring to here? This two-line question he asks. Dear Muse, this you you great man, you, you famous person, what do you need such weak witness of your name? What is the weak witness he's referring to? Well, that's the piled stones, the, hal- the hallowed relics, the starry pointing pyramid. Those are weak to you, to you great Shakespeare. It's nothing compared to what you deserve. Thou in our wonder and astonishment has built thyself a live-long monument. You want to kind of say lifelong monument, right? Like a live-long? What an interesting way of phrasing that. What do you think he means by live-long? So by live-long monument, a monument that lives long, that's durable. But it's an interesting, you know, has he could have said has built thyself a durable monument, a lasting monument, but he chose live long because he's a great poet and he's trying to emphasize the life that it's living, that it's still in. Where is it living? And this is the problem he's having, I think, with these hallowed relics, with these piled stones for honored bones and a starry. These are all dead things, but Shakespeare's still alive. It's true that Shakespeare, the human is dead, but there's still something he, he that Shakespeare has built that something live long that lives forever. And in fact, the fact that we're creating this folio after he's died in his honor in order to keep him going is part of the live long monument. For whilst to the shame of slow endeavoring art, thy easy numbers flow and that each heart hath from the leaves of thy unvalued book, those Delphic lines with deep impression took then thou, our fancy of itself bereaving, dost make us marble with too much conceiving. Now he's got a long sentence that he's ending this whole thing with. So he's, he basically sets up these questions 
of what's good enough for you. Dear son of memory, dear muse, heir of fame, nothing is good enough for you. So the shame of slow endeavoring art, of art that's not good enough for you in a sense, other people's art maybe, thy easy numbers flow. Maybe he's, maybe Milton here is referring to himself. You know, like I'm writing this thing for you in slow endeavoring art, thy easy numbers. Now numbers, that's another confusing one. That is a reference to Shakespeare's beautiful meter. In, in a, which is metered in a certain metrical rhyme and or metrical uh, foot, and it's it's got numbers to it. it da, 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 and it's you know it's got its iambic pentameter, and but it's numbers. It's like mathematics. Thy easy numbers flow, and that each heart has hath from the leaves of thy unvalued book. Hmm. Your unvalued book. What does that mean? That's an interesting one. Think about that one. Those Delphic lines, Delphic was an, the, the oracle of Delphi, so you know this is where you would go to read the future. Hath from the leaves of thy unvalued book those Delphic lines with deep impression took, then you, thou, our fancy of itself bereaving. Now what does bereaving mean? I mean, you know what it means, but what does it mean? To be deprived of a loved one through profound absence. That's one way to think about it our fancy of itself bereaving, but you're sad, you're deprived of somebody, and maybe our fancy of itself bereaving does make us marble with too much conceiving. I find this one to be confusing for a long time. It's a, an interesting one. Those Delphic lines, so what I tend to do is read through it, try to think of it in different ways. Those Delphic lines, so the way that you, he's talking about you, and by the way, unvalued book doesn't quite mean not valuable. It's it's I think it's like saying something. It's so value that it exceeds all value. It's invaluable, unvalued, but it's not capable. Of, like we're not capable of valuing it. Maybe one thing way to think about it. Those Delphic lines, so prophetic lines with deep impression. So they make a deep impression. Took then you, our fancy of itself bereaving thus make us marble with too much conceiving. So one way that I think about this, confusing to me for a long time, is this idea that we're not quite worthy <laughs> is one thing to think about it in one way that I've synopsized it. Is our, our imagination, our fancy itself, not able to do this, but it your work makes us a marble monument to you. And part of the key to this is the last two lines. And so sepulchred, so we get that monument sense again, where there's a sepulcher, you put a you know, coffin and an important man in there. And so, but so sepulchred, what are we sepulchred in? Well, it's that those last couple lines that we were talking about. It's the deep impression of Shakespeare's work on each of us. Such a big impression that our own imaginations bereave its loss and bereave its our imagination's inability to take in everything that Shakespeare was saying. <laughs> That's one kind of convoluted way of thinking about it. But essentially, I think it's something like we're not quite able to live up to the imagination that you the imaginative world you've been able to complete, but we nevertheless are the marble work that you have created to, 
to our best ability. And so, so us sepulchred in such pomp does we do lie. And this is so great, Shakespeare, that kings for such a tomb would wish to die. Kings would be willing to die just to have what you have attained. Now, this is a short poem with, I think, a lot going on. And one of the questions to always ask is, what's the value of the poem, if any, to yourself? And I think it's a great example of a variety of things. And, you know, I think it has themes of art and immortality. This is something that Shakespeare himself and many of his sonnets wrote quite a bit about. The idea of many of Shakespeare's poems and sonnets is that you beautiful woman that I'm writing about, this is like, I think, sonnet 18, you know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Uh, you beautiful woman are so beautiful and I'm writing about you and you know, you're more beautiful than the summer itself. And by the way, you're going to live forever because I wrote about you because that's how great I am. And this is a Renaissance trope. This is a, this is something that recurs over and over again. And that is that immortality is achieved and capable of being achieved through great art. And that I think is one of the big things that's being spoken here. I think there's something very true to that, that there's something everlasting, lifelong monument. It's a live-long monument if it's great art. And I think about books like books over here like Atlas Shrugged and something that Ayn Rand would talk about, which is the idea, which she would quote, I think, in The Fountainhead. <laughs> she would quote Victor Hugo, who said, if I wrote only for my own time, I would break my pen and throw it away. Right, And that is an important concept here, is the idea of not not only just the writing for all time, but also if you do a good job of that, your work will live a long time. And that's what happened with Shakespeare. Shakespeare was so great that he was able to live long and have a live long monument. But it's not a live long monument that's in, again, a statue or a sepulcher or a real sepulcher or an actual pyramid or a building. Instead, it's in our hearts. It's in the heart of each generation to reread it. So one of the themes I think Milton is working with here. One of the important ideas is this whole concept of not only just honoring those who come before you, but really paying homage to those whose shoulders you are standing on. Now, Milton would go on to create many great works of his own. He was in his own right, an amazing master of uh, poetry. And in fact, he's probably as influential as William Shakespeare himself. Many phrases we use today come out of William, out of John Milton. And some of the things that Milton is acknowledging that I think we today should acknowledge, which is why I'm personally such an advocate of reading the great books of the Western world and the literary canon, is because you need to be able to recognize and understand the greatness if you're going to actually achieve greatness. The way toward to achieve greatness is not to downgrade who came before you and say that what I hear a lot today, for instance, is they're sim- s- simply dead white guys. But to understand their greatness, to understand why every generation Every new generation has found pleasure, enjoyment, enlightenment from these works. And I argue they will. If you read them, you, if you read Shakespeare, if you read Milton's Paradise Lost, 
you will gain enlightenment, pleasure, joy, and a heightened sense of yourself and ability. And this is something that Milton was taking in when he was in his, what was he, um, in his late 20s? Early 20s? Uh, early 20s when he wrote this. This is something Milton was thinking about. Was, I want to be a poet. But if I want to be a poet, I want to be the greatest poet. And I believe, and others, not just me, but others believe that one of the reasons why Milton decided to write an epic poem later in his life is because Shakespeare had already written so great dramas that he didn't even want to compete with him. He's like, I'm not going to compete. I'm not, if I want to be as great as Shakespeare, but I don't want to compete, I want to do something new. And that's what he did. And, but he did that by understanding, by mastering the, he and they who came before him. And I believe that's an important thing for all of us today, especially in whatever field you choose. And that's one of the things I think is great about this poem. It's an homage that we should all have to our predecessors who taught us something, but also who showed us what greatness is and the possibility of greatness and what we can achieve, what is possible to us because they did it before us. Okay, that is on Shakespeare by John Milton. Hope you will come back and listen to some more of uh, my readings and analysis of some of John Milton's poems.